Shepney Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be listening for the very first time, and so for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's... um, a text of scripture you've been studying or a personal issue you're facing in your life and ministry and you'd like to have biblical counsel. Well, if we can help, uh, all you need to do is pick up the phone locally. Again, it's 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number is an 877 number. The toll-free is 877. The call letter is WAGP and then 980. Or if uh, you'd like, you can email us here directly into the studio The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. And your question will appear on the screen in front of us here in the studio. If you call in, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, as always, it's good to be here. Let's go ahead and we'll jump right in. All right, Pastor. Well, we've got a listener at your old stomping grounds up in Worcester, Mass. They would like to know... What is your opinion of Dr. Michael Brown of the Line of Fire Radio? Well, uh, I know Michael Brown by reputation. I haven't honestly listened to his radio broadcast, so I I won't comment on that. Uh, We broadcast in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I don't know that he would be on that station that we're on. I don't think he is. But in either case, uh, because they're pretty tight in terms of who they let on, he has some, uh, I would say, different kind of theology than I do. Uh, I think some that is not uh, accurate. Um, He was part of the old Brownsville revival that took place in the mid-90s to around 2000. Uh, That was a revival that, you know, had all kinds of excesses in it. Uh, They thought it was a great awakening of God. That's highly debatable. You know, people fainting on the floor, passing out, being in coma-like states. They call that being slain in the spirit, shaking uncontrollably, uh, laughing, uh, barking like dogs. Um, To me, that just is not the Holy Spirit's work. He is the God of self-control. He doesn't bring you to a point where you are out of control. And so there's, I think, a lot of confusion and imitation and not even imitation, but bizarre things that sometimes will excite people and bring the crowds in, uh, but not necessarily give them the gospel and the plan of salvation that they need. Now, if he's changed from that, uh, it would be news to me. Um, But I think uh, foundational to his theology, there's a lot of error there. And so... um, while I've not listened to his radio broadcast, I know him by reputation. Maybe he's had a change of heart. I hope so. Um, 
in which case, wonderful. So that's all I'll say on him. So, All right. Very good. Uh, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Joseph from Loudoun, Tennessee writes, why do you take such detail on how one must be baptized and then gloss over the real presence of the elements in the Lord's Supper? The Bible clearly states that Jesus says of the elements, this is my body and this is my blood. And Luther had this difference with Swingley at the Marburg Castle. Can you give me sola scriptura for this action? Well, um, Joseph from Tennessee, you haven't been in our services. So uh, in fairness to your comment, I, I recognize that you don't see all that transpires when we gather to worship. But every time we do have the Lord's table, I go into great detail. We have the Lord's table at least once a month. It sounds like you're from probably a Catholic background and being Roman Catholic, uh, you probably have a different view uh, on the Lord's Supper. Uh, But baptism is obviously important. It's very different from the Roman Catholic view. Uh, Baptism in the Catholic view washes away original sin and actual sin as the Baltimore Catechism echoes and restores salvation to the soul. I don't believe that for one skinny moment. I I think baptism is very important, but it's always done after salvation. The Bible says, believe and then be baptized, uh, not uh, be baptized and later believe. So God's word is clear and every example and model in the book of Acts is always follows salvation. Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, look water, why can't I be baptized? And Philip qualitatively says you can only be baptized if you have first believed. Uh, In response to your question on the Lord's table, uh, certainly Luther did have a different view from Swingley, but he did not believe in transubstantiation. Uh, But let me go to the passage that our Catholic friends like to use. And I would just challenge you to kind of think it through. Um, I I recognize that divine tradition, as the Roman church refers to it, carries the same weight and authority as the Bible itself. And so I do believe in sola scriptura, that scripture alone must be our final authority and not the traditions of the church or their take on those traditions. Certainly, Uh, In fairness to Roman Catholics, there have been traditions that have been carried down verbally, orally, that they have not necessarily embraced. But when they officially embrace a tradition, they say it comes on the same authority as Scripture. But here in John chapter 6, where I've turned to, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. So uh, Jesus is making an incredible statement. He has already said earlier in this chapter, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So now he refers here in verse 51 to his flesh and he refers to it several times in this chapter. And it's important to understand what he means here by flesh. I think when he, when he speaks of eating of the bread, Um, and that he gives his flesh. He's not speaking of his literal body. And again, context is everything. Context spells things out. Context explains things for you. He says here, the bread that I shall give is my flesh. He's he's using a future tense. 
He is looking to his voluntary death. He has already said, or will say a little bit later in John 10, that no one will take my life away from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to to take it back. So he voluntarily, vicarious, vicariously, substitutionary in nature, makes himself uh, the object of God's wrath. And in that sense, he certainly gave his flesh. And, and he says here, for the life of the world. So here's the point. If all Jesus did, of course, was come to this earth and give us an example to follow and tell us to shape up and give us some new commands that maybe we hadn't had in the Old Testament, uh, and then he ascended back into heaven, we would be in a hopeless mess uh, because we would have nothing but a track record of failure in trying to keep what God wants us to do because we are sinners by nature, by birth. And so the Lord came down and he gave his flesh. He came to give his life on Golgotha, one, so that we could be forgiven, uh, so that we could secondly reestablish that relationship with God that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Jesus said, this is eternal life. He'll say later in this gospel that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. So it's finding forgiveness, it's finding relationship, but it's also finding a changed life. Paul will say, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, How does that happen practically? Well, when you believe on Christ, you receive the spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you and he gives you new life. And that's where your, your ability to follow the commandments of God change as you grow up in Christ. But then uh, to make it, I suppose, even more challenging, he says, truly, I say to you in verse 53, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. And of course, again, my, my Roman Catholic friends would uh, say, well, this is what we have to do at the mass. And I, I, I think it's uh, the Baltimore Catechism. I think it's chapter 26. I don't know if you Google that, Rick. You've got a computer in front of you. Just type in Baltimore Catechism. I think it's less than 26. I can still see the picture in my mind of Christ over a table as a young man. We had to memorize the Baltimore Catechism. Um, we would be tested on it. And, of course, your memory only lasted some weeks. But, yeah, there you go. Um the Baltimore Catechism, what is the Holy Eucharist? The Holy Eucharist is a sacrament and a sacrifice, they write. In the Holy Eucharist, under the appearances, under the appearances, please note, of bread and wine, the Lord Christ is contained, offered, and received. The whole Christ is really, truly, and substantially present. This is out of a Roman Catholic document. In the Holy Eucharist. We use the words really, truly, and substantially to describe Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist in order to distinguish our Lord's teaching from that of mere men who falsely teach that the Holy Eucharist is only a sign or a figure of Christ. I, I guess that's me. I'm falsely teaching that. Um, and, and it goes on from there. Um, scroll up a little bit, Rick, so I can see a little bit more. Keep going. Keep going. Um, uh, let's see. How did Christ institute the Holy Eucharist? Now, let's go to 347. What happened when our Lord said, this is my body, this is my blood? When our Lord said, this is my body, the entire substance of the bread was changed into his body. And when he said, this is my blood, the entire substance of the wine was changed into his blood. Christ could not have used clearer, more explicit words. This is, again, the Baltimore Catechism, not my words. 
more explicit words than this is my body. He did not say this is a sign of my body or this represents my body, but this is my body. Catholics take Christ at his word because he is the omnipotent God on his word. They know that the Holy Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. Of course, if I won't read it all, but if you keep reading there uh, in the Baltimore Catechism, they, they call this a miracle that the bread, the uh, juice can retain the same appearance, smell, feel, taste. But nonetheless, they say it is literally uh, changed into the body and blood of Christ. Well, I don't think that's Jesus's point. I I think here his point in John six, because you've got to let the scripture interpret the scripture and context is everything. I think in essence, he's saying, unless you appropriate my life and the saving merit of my blood, you can't have life in yourself. And and if you think about it, eating is really, it's a, it's a picture of appropriation. When I put food in my mouth, I've taken it in and I've appropriated the nutrients. I've appropriated the benefits. And of course, when he makes this statement, the Jews, it says here in verse 52, began to argue with one another. They get into this hot argument. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Uh, They're really bent out of shape. And of course, this is not the first time when Jesus gave an illustration that people ask questions like this with Nicodemus. You must be born again. How can a man be born when he's old? You can't go back into the birth canal. Um, Jesus speaks of living water. Sir, I don't have a bucket uh, to draw the water and the well is very, very deep. And, and so here again, he's saying, I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven and uh, you've got to eat my flesh and drink. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So it's very, very similar uh, kinds of responses. And of course he, he makes the point here that he's giving himself for the life of the whole world. So if you are literally going to eat the flesh of Christ, you know, we're going to take ultra minuscule bites uh, to feed, you know, 7.5 billion people. Well, here's how the Roman Catholics get around that. They say that it's transformed by the power the priest has been given through the bishop, through the cardinal, all the way up to the pope. But again, you know, I don't think it means that for a number of reasons. Number one, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, I think it's the 16th or 17th chapter, God gives very clear prohibitions about not drinking blood. Uh, It's something that is of great disdain to him. And even when the Jerusalem council meets, and you can read of it in, in Acts chapter 15, Uh, There were some moral dictates that God laid upon the Gentiles, and one was that they could not drink blood. And so that is still a prohibition today. Um, Most people don't drink blood, though I I think in parts of Pennsylvania, they still offer blood sausage. I think that might be the only exception that I can typically think of, other than maybe some really weird occult kind of groups. But the blood is precious to God. And uh, he made coats of skin for Adam and Eve to show that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Uh, He received Abel's offering over Cain's because one came on the basis of blood. The other came on the basis of human merit. He uh, asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And of course, God provides a substitute. But nonetheless, he's teaching without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And you see it in the Passover. You see it throughout the sacrificial system all the way through the Holy Scripture. But again, context is everything. And so Jesus has said here, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, I think one of the keys 
to understanding this text is what he has already said in verse 40. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him may have eternal life. And here's the same phrase. I myself will raise him up on the last day. So what one phrase means, the other must mean. And he's already stated clearly in John 6, 40, that believing in him is the guarantee that you have eternal life and someday your body will come out of the grave. And if that's what that means, then you have to understand verse 54 in the same way, that there is an appropriation of the benefits and merits of uh, Christ's death, uh, his flesh and his blood that was offered as a sacrifice there on the cross. And of course, he will uh, make it very, very clear in this chapter that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit who gives life in verse uh, 63. So he's speaking in spiritual terms, just like he was with Nicodemus with uh, the second birth, just as he was with the woman at the well, with the living water. And so he is here in John chapter six, just a few chapters later, three, four and six. He uses these three pictures to describe ultimately what he is going to accomplish for us on the cross. Now to get back to Luther, Luther of course is a Roman Catholic priest. He's an Augustinian monk and he is uh, reading the scripture and his heart is directed to the marvelous truth that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. And it's that that propels him on October the 31st, 1517, 500 years uh, has passed or is getting ready to pass. We're coming up on October the 31st where he, and we'll celebrate Reformation Sunday, this Sunday at Community Bible Church. Uh, but he tacked to the door at the church at Wittenberg, those 500 or those 95 assertions 500 years ago. And of course, most of them deal with the subject of purgatory. It's largely about purgatory, but nonetheless, he is affirming justification by grace alone through faith alone. But Luther still comes out of a Roman Catholic background and he carries with him a lot of baggage. And there were some areas that his theology was not all that reformed in. He still held to infant baptism and took somewhat of a sacramental view of it. Was he right? No, I think he was wrong. Uh, he still held not to transubstantiation, but consubstantiation rather than Swingley and others who said, no, this is symbolic. Um, the consubstantiation, the illustration that he used that if you heat up a piece of metal, that in and around the metal, there would be heat that would emanate from it. And so Luther did not say that the bread and the juice was literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ, but he did say that Christ was present in and around the elements, kind of a mediated view between um, the Swinglian view and the Roman Catholic view of his day. Was he right? I don't think so. I think he, I think he was wrong on that. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, he had the gospel and praise God for that. L Luther was wrong and he wasn't a perfect man. He was wrong on a number of issues, but he had the gospel and he brought it to an institutionalized church that didn't have it. God's church has always existed ever before the Roman Catholic church became the powerhouse that it did in Luther's day, God always had his local assemblies that were meeting. The gates of hell have never prevailed against his church. But there were certainly uh, times when the institutionalized church, as today, not just Catholic, but Protestant well, needs gr great reformation. 
Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our first caller of the day has a difficult situation. She has a loved one who was in a tragic accident and has now lost the ability to make a decision for Christ. To her knowledge, this loved one did not accept Christ before the accident, which has taken all cognitive functions. So this caller would like to know what the Bible says about whether this person can be forgiven. It's a, it's a great question, and uh, there are two categories of people in our apologetic section of uh, our discovery class. We offer a 45-week discovery class that can be started any week. They could walk in at week 40 and go 40 to 45 and 1 to 39. But two questions that we ask and answer in the apologetic sections of the course is what about those who've never heard the gospel? And a second question, what about those who can't believe? Uh, there is a category of people who cannot believe. Um, but I think they're a little different from your friend, but this is why I raise it. Those who cannot believe would be like, um, an infant in the womb. Uh, they cannot make a decision yet for Christ. Um, a baby that's been miscarried, a little child that's been born, maybe someone who's severely retarded. Now there are people who uh, have down syndrome and other mental challenges that, are very, very um, spiritual people because they've received Christ as their Savior. And while they may sometimes function on a fifth or seventh grade level or a third grade level or a kindergarten level, uh, just like a six or seven year old can embrace and believe the gospel, some of these people can. Some cannot. And God recognizes that, and I think he takes it into play. But I don't believe for one skinny second, and I answered this question last week. If someone is interested, just go to last week's Bible line. Uh, I dealt with the question because someone called, and they had just lost their four-year-old daughter. And I attempted to answer the question about what happens when a little child dies. They go to heaven. But it may be a little bit different here with your friend, assuming they are past the childhood age. And I don't have that information, but let's just say for the sake of argument, your friend is 30. Or let's say your friend is um, 17. Then they have certainly reached a time where they can cognitively, unless there's some kind of, you know, uh, mental uh, disability from birth, then they have certainly reached the time when they can make a decision for Christ. And if they didn't make that decision, and again, for the sake of argument, let's just say that they do not now have the ability in their mind to make a decision, then their opportunity has left them. Uh, and that's very, very sad if that's the case, if that's the situation. Um, you don't sometimes know what people can hear or not hear. Uh, there are many uh, testimonies that have been given in the last 50 years. In fact, I just heard a man recently share his own testimony that he was in a coma and people came into his room and uh, were sharing with him and he heard everything that they said. Now, the doctors didn't think he was hearing anything, but... Um, he did in reality. And I, and I think of a pastor who once shared the story with his mother who was in a coma and he wondered if she couldn't speak, she couldn't open her eyes, 
Um, but she was somehow still conscious such that he could, she could squeeze his finger once for yes and squeeze her finger twice for no. So sometimes you don't know. Sometimes the medical profession has written the person off. And no, they don't understand anything, but sometimes they do. So with your friend, and it's obviously heartbreaking, but it's a reminder to us that none of us have the promise of tomorrow. None of us have the um, absolute promise that we'll be alive a half an hour from now or that Jesus could not return before this broadcast is over. He can. He could come and catch up his church and those who've heard the gospel and had opportunity prior to the gospel. It will be too late for them. Uh, They'll be forever lost. So it's a reminder to us of the urgency of the gospel Uh, But don't totally despair. It might be that your friend, your loved one knows more than they real than anyone in the medical profession realizes. So I would go and talk to them just like they were awake and I'd speak over their bed and give them the gospel. And uh, God only knows where they are at. And when you get to eternity, you will certainly find out. But anyway. All right. Very good. Uh, another caller says that he recently had a conversation with a man who said he was a born again Christian yet believed in abortion. How does someone reconcile these two? Well, I understand it's somewhat of an oxymoron, isn't it? Uh, for someone to say they believe in abortion and at the same time claim to be a born again Christian. Um, let me just share a couple thoughts. One is from first Corinthians chapter two. In verse 14, it says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised or understood. So a natural man, and that's the way we come into this world. That's the way we naturally are. We are physically alive, but we are, to use uh, Jude's words in verse 19 of that one chapter book, we are devoid of the Spirit. We are without the Spirit physically alive, spiritually dead. And so our ability to embrace spiritual truth is really not there. Asking a natural man to embrace spiritual truth is like asking a blind man to evaluate a piece of artwork or a deaf man to be a judge at a music recital. He doesn't have the equipment for it. Now, with that statement said, it is entirely possible that a person could come to faith in Christ and They were pro-abortion and uh, they've been saved two days. And what's your view? I think it's a woman's right. You know, if she wants to have an abortion and, but because he's regenerated the spirit, there might be a check in his spirit or he might begin to ask questions. Well, what does the Bible say? Or someone might say, well, let me share with you what the Bible says. And you take them to a number of passages, which I've used on the Bible line here over the years. Uh, God calls uh, Jeremiah from his mother's womb. He doesn't call a hunk of tissue. He calls people. Paul made the same statement of himself in Galatians. Um, From the moment of conception, King David in Psalm 51 saw himself as a person. Uh, In Psalm 139, God wove us together in our mother's womb. Uh, John the Baptist is uh, able by the spirit of God to leap in Elizabeth's womb when uh, Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary. Um, Why? Because he's a person. He's called apart, set apart as the forerunner of the Lord. 
And so life begins at the moment of conception. The Bible's very clear on that. So if your friends saw those passages and still said, but I believe in abortion, then your friend is probably not born again. Uh, because if someone defies the clear teaching of scripture, and this is not, uh, um, you know, something that's really uh, vague. This is something that's very clear. And so if someone defies the clear teaching of scripture, then they are giving every mark that they've really never met the living God. That's, that's one of the uh, points that Jesus makes in John 15. Uh, if you really uh, know him, then you have a different response towards the word of God than that of someone with a hard, unbelieving, unrepentant, unregenerate life. Uh, so uh, I would go to your friend believing the best and say, well, let me share with you what the Bible says and take him through some of those passages. You know, I think though it is a reminder, this caller that our goal as Christians is to first preach the gospel. You know, you could scientifically medically uh, dissuade someone from embracing abortion to becoming pro-life. You know, I remember when I was on a free speech platform at Duke University and I was a campus pastor there and they would have on Fridays a free speech platform where anyone could get up and speak. And, and uh, that day the topic happened to be abortion and one young lady was speaking of her right to an abortion and I stood up and with compassion in my heart, but nonetheless with the truth, I said, you know, it's kind of odd that. Uh, 300 yards from here was the opening door to Duke Medical Center, Duke Hospital. Someone could come in to this hospital five months pregnant, wanting to have an abortion. And they would perform it. This was back in uh, between 1980 and 1985 when I served on that campus. Someone else could come in five months pregnant and they're going into premature labor and that same hospital and that same medical staff would do everything in their power to save that baby. Now, is that not somewhat a contradiction of terms? So when does life begin? Does it begin the day before the baby's born or the day he is born? Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States was unwilling to define in Roe v. Wade exactly when life began. And yet they opened the floodgates where we went from approximately 28,000 abortions in 1972 to over a million every year. Some say, well, it's dropped a little bit. Yeah, it has probably because of the sophistication of birth control uh, and things like that. Um, and things that women are doing in order to have um, intimacy with someone they're typically not married to without any consequence. I don't think we've changed that many hearts, but nonetheless, if you lead someone to Christ and they are a new creature, you will change their view on abortion. So you can medically argue someone into a pro-life stance. Look, I have a lot of Roman Catholic friends. There, there's some pastors in this town that don't believe in biblical inerrancy and yet they're outspoken in terms of being pro-life. Wonderful. That doesn't mean they're born again, but it's virtually impossible for someone to say they're born again and not to be pro-life. And so if your friend was confronted with some of the simple scriptures and said, no, I, I believe it's a woman's right, then you're talking to a man who's an unbeliever who d is unable to embrace the things of the spirit of God. All right. Very good.
Uh, would you say that uh, being made in the image of God has fits in there somewhere? Absolutely. You know, God, God is, uh, um, God is the protector. He's the creator of life. We're, we're not animals. And of course we live in a society where evolution has basically taught children from a young age that, you know, humans are just sophisticated, more highly evolved animals. No, we're not animals. Uh, God breathed into Adam the breath of life and man became a living soul. And so we're distinctly different from the animal world. Uh, man is the height of God's creation. Uh, animals are not made in the image and likeness of God. People are. Um, he, and that's why man is uh, forever religious. You never see a dog or a cat praying or seeking to worship God. Um, only people do that. That's part of being made in God's image. We have a soul that God created uh, for worship. Now, unfortunately, that soul is spiritually dead and needs to be quickened. And so without the second birth, people can worship God in all kinds of false ways. Uh, but nonetheless, um, no, uh, being made in the image of God in the Imago Dei is central to the whole message of why we are pro-life. All right. Very good. Joe from Lincoln, Rhode Island, uh, says that he has a friend who is not Jewish, but has taken on the practices of the Old Testament Torah and a host of rabbinical teaching in addition to the Torah. He has accepted Christ as Messiah, but is more committed to living out the Old Covenant commands than living in the New. He practices the Sabbath, the feasts, and the dietary restrictions. Now, Joe continues, I'm not saying any of this is bad in itself, but didn't Christ fulfill all this, and are we not free from the law and its demands? Was not the law our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? Well, Joe raises a good question, and I appreciate that. We broadcast in Rhode Island. Um, I, I forgot the name of the station that we're on, but do you know off W-A-R-V. W-A-R-V, and uh, it's out of Providence, I think. And in either case, um, the passage that I've just turned to is from Colossians chapter 2. And there the Apostle Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which is a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So Paul, of course, is dealing with a, a church that was comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And so there was a transition period out of the old covenant into the new covenant. And you had all these people who were raised in a Jewish home where they celebrated the festivals and certain feast days and so forth. But Paul reminds us here that those things were just shadows of a thing to come, but the substance is Christ. So the Bible would definitely make a clear distinction between the moral law of God, which is eternal, and the uh, Mosaic law or the ceremonial law that was temporal, that was shadows. That's not to say that um, we could not as a church or as a pastor or you in a Bible study context uh, take some Old Testament festival and teach its significance. There's there's great uh, meaning and great uh, pictures over what Jesus would accomplish in the Old Testament law, in the pictures that he, he gave there. But those things are, are not to be followed religiously today because they are shadows. And I think to 
uh, for this man to live like a, a Jewish person in terms of uh, practicing the Old Testament ceremonial law, the certain feast days of the Old Testament is really to deny the truth in, in John 1 that through Moses, you know, came the law, but grace and truth were realized through the Lord Jesus Christ. So yeah, I suppose, again, if a congregation occasionally, you know, maybe reenacted, say, a, a Passover Seder in order to teach its meaning, that would that would be great. Because remember, all scripture, even the Mosaic law is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. But that doesn't mean that we are to follow it. So your your friend is living under a different covenant and somewhat I deal with this somewhat in a message I preached in Romans, um, the 14th and really the 15th chapter, where again, you're in somewhat of a transition period where, you know, let's just say someone for the sake of argument had been raised in a home where their entire life it was wrong to eat certain kinds of meats and certain kind of fish, like the self shellfish, oysters and shrimp and lobster and crab. Those were all scavengers. They were forbidden under the Old Testament dietary laws. Uh, certain animals that uh, like pig and scavengers like rabbit, were they were forbidden under the Old Testament dietary laws. Jesus, however, in Mark seven seventeen, makes it very clear that what defiles a man is not what is eliminated and then goes out, but what comes out of his heart. And so he declares all meats to be clean. And of course, in the illustration uh, to Peter in Acts 10, when he has that dream, God lets all these unclean animals come down in a sheet. And Peter says, never, Lord, I can't eat those things. And, and God says, no, what I've declared clean no one is to call unclean. And of course, his point in that was to help Peter get a new perspective on how he was to deal with Gentiles in terms of his evangelization of those who were not Jewish and how he was to treat them. But God never uses an illustration that has an error in it in which to teach truth. So in Romans 14, you had some people, some Christians who grew up under the Jewish dietary laws and then you had Gentiles who, to them, it was no big deal because they ate pork their whole life. And so there was potentially an opportunity for some contention in the church. And, and Paul argues that, no, you, you need to be willing to yield your freedom so as to not create division and cause a brother to stumble. But with that said, he doesn't want the weaker brother to stay in that weaker state. He will start chapter 15 by saying, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification for even Christ did not please himself and so on. He, he goes from there. So um, your, your friend is living in shadows. And he may think he's uh, being spiritual by living in those shadows, but he's really not. And he needs to recognize that um, those shadows just pointed to Christ. And he's denying really all that Christ fulfilled by uh, appropriating those shadows, whether it's the way he cuts his hair or the clothing he wears or the food he eats or whatever it might be. Very good, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, this uh, next question comes from Denise in Bluffton. She writes, my son is believing a lie and living a gay lifestyle. 
I love my son and have not turned my back on him, but what does God expect of me as his parent? My fear is facing God and his righteousness one day, hearing his rebuke that I didn't do more to help my son see the truth. Well, um, this caller from Bluffton uh, is facing a situation that a lot of parents are facing today, even evangelical parents, where their child, their daughter, their son says, I'm homosexual, I'm a lesbian, and you know, what do you do? Uh, and it is a heartbreaking thing for a Christian parent to have a son or a daughter who makes these kinds of decisions. And let me just say parenthetically, there are things that can drive these decisions sometimes. Uh, very often a, a young man may turn to a homosexual lifestyle because he's been abused physically uh, as a young man. And he uh, has been sodomized by some older man and he doesn't know how to deal with all the shame. And so at some point in his life, because he doesn't know how to deal with the shame, he, he embraces the shame and turns into that lifestyle. Again, where sin abounds, however, grace abounds all the more. So no one can ever use that as an excuse. Typically when parents discover, especially born again, parents, if they're not born again, they'll say, well, I guess this is just the new generation. And you know, we need to embrace this and, oh, you want to get married, son, to your boyfriend? Okay, well, we'll, we'll throw on a, a nice wedding and they just embrace it. Obviously, Christians think very differently because they recognize that this is not some genetic uh, um, formula that you've been born with and you had no choice over, that this is a moral issue. And so God says, and I have a message, is it okay to be gay? It's on, if you just type in YouTube, is it okay to be gay? Carl Brogy will come up. I go through virtually every single passage, Old and New Testament, on what God says on the subject of homosexuality. And I do, I think, remind people at the end of that message that, you know, sometimes we project on people who've come out of a homosexual lifestyle a certain... Uh, second-class status in the kingdom of God, whereas someone who's heterosexual and slept with uh, 500 women, well, they're all right, but, but that guy, you know, that girl, she came out of a gay lifestyle. Listen, God's word is clear. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor homosexuals, and on the lift go, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse is, and such were some of you. So God can save anyone from any lifestyle. So don't despair. What parents sometimes do is they turn inward and they begin to blame themselves. So, you know, dad says, you know, if I just taken this boy hunting more, you know, he would have been different. Or, um, you know, they begin to internalize and blame themselves. And you can't do that. You can't live there. You'll never be able to go forward. But neither can you compromise God's standards. And so like um, I had a question not that long ago from a family in our church and their daughter, adult daughter has come out gay and now she has a lady she lives with and um, wanted to know about the holidays as they approach. If, uh, if I thought it would be okay for them to let these two people come to their home under the view of trying to reach them for Christ uh, and sleep under the same roof in the same bedroom together. And I said, well, let's just change the circumstances here just a little bit. Suppose your daughter was 17 and she had a boyfriend and she was not homosexual, but heterosexual. 
and she wanted the boyfriend to come and spend the night in your home. Would you allow that? Absolutely not. Of course not. Uh, you would not want to um, put forth sin under your roof, under your home that you've dedicated to the Lord and to promote evil. I said, it's no different whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. If there's a, if you've got a brother and he wants to come to your house for Christmas and he's been living with a woman for five years and he wants to come to your house, great, let him come, but don't let him sleep in the same room because you have certain standards and you can't break those standards. And if you acquiesce on the clear teaching of scripture, then you're basically giving free license to your son or daughter to do what is evil. And that does not please the Lord. And you do them a great disservice in terms of trying to reach them for Christ. And, and parents do that. They think, well, I want to be their friend and I want to win them to the Lord. Well, that's not the way you're going to win them by denying the truth of God's word. God's law, as someone from Worcester quoted from Galatians, is a schoolmaster to lead us to faith in Christ. That's one of the functions of the law. So you hold the standard tight. You welcome them saying, yes, you can come home for Thanksgiving. Yes, you and your friend can sit at the table with us. No, you cannot sleep under this roof. It's not going to work that way. Um, Because we as Christians have these standards. And if they say, well, then I'm not coming. Then as heartbreaking as that is, you've done the right thing. And you just pray for them. But don't lose hope. Don't despair thinking, oh, they'll never come to Christ. That's what the devil wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that they're almost virtually unsavable. Remember the, and such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6 verse. Uh, God can save anyone from any kind of a lifestyle. And uh, we need to never forget that. All right, very good. Uh, We just got another caller, and uh, she has children who would like to know what happened to Elijah's physical body in 2 Kings chapter 2 when he was taken up to heaven. It's a good question. The Bible does not fully reveal what happened to his body, uh, but I know what didn't happen to his body because the Scripture is very clear that the first fruits— The first fruit of those to rise from the dead in a resurrection body was Jesus. So Jesus was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrection body. Now, why is that important? Because Paul makes it very clear that you can't just have any kind of body to enter into God's heavenly kingdom. Just like you can't have just any kind of body to enter into Hades and ultimately the lake of fire. He says, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we're not all die, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For this perishable must put on, must put on, must put on the imperishable in this mortal must put on immortality. So flesh and blood, the body you have right now, the body that Elijah had when he walked on the planet is not suitable for heaven. Yet he was translated and people physically saw him go up into the sky. But I take it at some point in that transition that that body that he had in this earthly life was shed. What God did with it, the scripture doesn't reveal. But I do know he did not receive his 
raptured body, his caught up body, his resurrected body, because the first one ever to receive a resurrection body is the Lord Jesus. And after him, after he was raised from the dead, Matthew reveals, and, and it's all fitting, by the way, with the Feast of First Fruits. A caller from another state asked about their friend who celebrates uh, a lot of the Jewish festivals. Well, I mentioned that the fact that God wrote of them is very important because we can teach people what their meaning is and the implications that it has. And there is great typology in the various festivals. And so one of the festivals was the Feast of First Fruits. It's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover. He is buried in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he rises from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. That's not by accident. That's exactly how God designed it. And through the whole process of First Fruits, there is a picture of what God would accomplish. A man would bring a single stalk of the initial harvest, and it would be blessed and uh, dedicated to the Lord, and then he would also have a handful of grain. And after that, it was a picture of the good harvest that they believed God would bring to follow. So it says, Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Reading from Matthew 27, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection and entered into the holy city. So in the feast of first fruits, Jesus would be that single stock that was presented to the feast. He's the first one to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. After that, there was a handful of grain dedicated. And that's the small number of Old Testament saints who come out in a resurrected body, walk around the city, and presumably then they're taken up into heaven. And then the harvest is yet to come. The big harvest is yet to come. That is still in the future. And that's what we are looking forward to. This big harvest. It will begin with the rapture of the church. And it will continue uh, through the tribulation period. That great number of people that no one can count. That we're getting ready to study in our exposition of the revelation. Uh, that God will uh, bring to life and all those Old Testament saints who will receive resurrection bodies at the end of the seven year tribulation. So there's a harvest still out there in the future. <clears throat> so Elijah, with that said, when he goes to heaven, he obviously has some kind of a recognizable body. When your loved one dies, and if you die before the rapture of the church, you'll see your loved one, not in some kind of just you know, floating spirit where you can't say, oh, that's that's Uncle Jeff or or that's my granddaddy or that's my daughter. You'll be able to recognize them. And so it appears in Scripture that we are given some intermediate temporal body uh, before God raises up our final body in such that Elijah with Moses is with Jesus, both in recognizable bodies on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's in a recognizable body, but he's not in his resurrection body. Okay, very good. Um, this is a rather long question. I'm not going to read all of the scripture verses. You can use probably some of them. But what is your take on a Christian celebrating Halloween, given the holiday's true origin? 
this caller would like to know um, what should a Christian do? I understand for some it gives them the opportunity to reach their neighbors, but I think we can do it by giving out candy and inviting them to the church or handing out tracts with the candy. Give them Jesus that way. Well, it's a good question. It's one that often comes up during this time of year. You've got people on a couple ends of the spectrum, some that celebrate Halloween just like any pagan would. And they give their kids costumes that are really evil looking. And I I think of anything inspired by the evil one. He's the God of this world. And he is working in the hearts and minds of people. And I think certainly Halloween has changed from the time I was a child. There might have been some degree of that, but it's become much more overtly evil. Uh, I used to dress up as a hobo when I was a kid. And so took a piece of cork and rubbed some dirt on my face and had a stick with a little thing tied behind my back and went door to door and got my candy. Um, But it's become much more aggressively evil. And certainly there are satanic groups that view this almost like a holiday. They just see it as an opportunity to celebrate evil. But do I believe that when someone comes to your door and you give them a piece of candy that you're giving some kind of an offering to the devil, that's just superstition. That's crazy. That's like saying the idol actually has life in it. The idol has no life in it. Now there can be demons that work behind an idol but the idol is just a piece of glass or wood or stone and it has no life. Paul reminds us of that. So with that said, you've got someone one end of the spectrum, maybe they're new young Christians and you know, they're not really that grown up yet in the Lord and they're insensitive and they let their kid dress up like the devil or some other vicious evil zombie or whatever. I don't think that's healthy. At the other end of the spectrum, you have Christians who, say, look, this is the devil's holiday. I'm going to have nothing to do with it. Well, if that's what God has convinced you of your conscience, then that's be- that should be what you do based on Romans chapter 14. If you do not have the freedom in any way, shape or form to participate, then don't. Uh, I think though, there's nothing wrong personally, uh, again, with your child dressing in an appropriate way, in a God honoring way, something that if Jesus saw, oh, that's really cute, or that's lovely, or, you know, um, and and sometimes even biblical characters, who are you? I'm Moses. Who are you? Uh, I'm Ruth. And they show up at the door and, you know, people ask that all the time. And the the child could even give the the person who's giving them a piece of candy uh, a tract. Or certainly the family could give the child a gospel tract or an invitation to friend day, uh, which like community Bible church people could certainly do uh, coming up uh, a week from this coming Sunday, first Sunday in November. So you could use it evangelistically as a great way. Look, 80% of the children in America no longer go to church. The, 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 the biblical illiteracy that is happening is just unbelievable with this new generation that gives little thought to God for themselves, much less their children. So that little gospel track that you may give out may be the only thing that child will get. And it will be so unique in that bag of candy. They'll probably read it. And you pray over those uh, children that come to your door. Thanks for being with us. 